Chapter 9 of the Loudwater Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Loudwater Mystery by Edgar Jepson. Chapter 9. When Mr. Flexen reached the castle, Wilkins took him to a bedroom in the West Wing. He found that his portmanteau had arrived, had been unpacked, and that his dress clothes were laid out ready for him on the bed. As he dressed, he cudgeled his brains for the reason why Lady Loudwater and Colonel Grey had lied. Then an idea came to him. Were they lying to shield the unknown woman with whom Lord Loudwater had had that violent quarrel? The longer he considered this hypothesis, the more possible it grew. He must find that unknown woman, and at once, possibly, Mr. Carrington, as Lord Loudwater's legal adviser, would be able to put him on her track. He came to dinner still perplexed to find Mr. Manley waiting to bear him company. They talked for a while about public affairs and the weather. Then Mr. Flexen said, Was Lord Loudwater the kind of man to confide in his lawyers? Not if he could help it, said Mr. Manley with conviction. Mr. Flexen hoped that Lord Loudwater had not been able to help confiding in his lawyers about this unknown woman. Then he said, By the way, do you know Colonel Grey? Oh, yes, he was here a lot up to a little while ago. Then he had a row, the inevitable row, with Lord Loudwater, and he hasn't been here since. He dropped on to Lord Loudwater for bullying Lady Loudwater, and he didn't drop on him lightly, either. Hell, I fancy, was what he gave him. Yes, I gather that something of the kind had taken place. What kind of man is the colonel, said Mr. Flexen carelessly. The best man in the world not to have a row with. He's a cold terror, said Mr. Manley, in a tone of enthusiastic conviction. He always seems rather cooler than a cucumber. But my belief is that the coolness is just the mask of really violent emotions. I saw them working once. I came in on the end of his row with Loudwater, just at the end of it. My goodness, from my point of view, the dramatists, you know, he's the most interesting person in the country, bar Lady Loudwater, of course. I should never have thought him a terror, said Mr. Flexen, in a tone of somewhat incredulous surprise. I had a talk with him this evening about Lord Loudwater's death, and he seemed to me to be a pleasant enough fellow and an excellent soldier, I take it, that he's very keen on his career in the army. Not a bit of it. The war is merely a side issue with him, said Mr. Manley, in an assured tone. I know from what he told me himself. We were talking over our experiences. But hang it all, he's a V.C., cried Mr. Flexen. Yes, he's a V.C., all right, but that's because he's one of those men who have the knack of taking an interest in everything they turn their hands to and doing it well. But his two passions are Chinese art and women, said Mr. Manley. Women, said Mr. Flexen. He didn't strike me as being that kind of man at all. He seems a quite simple, straightforward soldier. Simplicity and a passion for Chinese art don't go together. At least, not what is usually called simplicity, said Mr. Manley dryly. A friend of mine, who knows all about him, told me that he had had more really serious love affairs 
than any other man in London. He seems to be one of those men who fall in love hard every time they fall in love. He said that it was one of the mysteries of the polite world how he had kept out of the divorce court. Sounds an odd type, said Mr. Flexen, storing up the information and marking how little it agreed with his own observation of Colonel Gray. And you say that Lady Loudwater is interesting, too? Oh, come, are you pumping me or merely pulling my leg, said Mr. Manley. Surely you can see that Lady Loudwater is pure Italian renaissance. She is one of those subtle, mysterious creatures that Leonardo or Luini were always painting, compact of emotion. It's so long since I was at Balio, and then I was doing Indian civil work, the languages, you know. I've forgotten all I knew about the Renaissance in Italy, and I don't look at many pictures. All the same, I think you're wrong. Your dramatic imagination, you know. My own idea is that Lady Loudwater, at any rate, is a quite simple creature. It isn't mine, said Mr. Manley firmly. She's a great deal too intelligent to be simple. She comes from far too intelligent a family. What family? said Mr. Flexen. She's a quaintan with Italian blood in her veins. The deuce she is, cried Mr. Flexen, and a half a dozen stories of the quaintans rose in his mind. He must amend his impressions of Lady Loudwater. And she has a keener sense of humor than any woman I ever came across, said Mr. Manley, driving his contention home. Has she? said Mr. Flexen. There was a pause, and Mr. Manley said in a musing tone, Do you suppose that Colonel Gray finds her simple? What? You don't think there's anything really serious between them, said Mr. Flexen quickly. No, not really serious at any rate on Colonel Gray's part. You can hardly expect a man recovering very slowly from three bad wounds and still crocked up to fall in love, can you? Especially a man who, when he does fall in love, falls in love with the violence with which Gray is charged, said Mr. Manley. There is that, said Mr. Flexen, but that wouldn't prevent Lady Loudwater from falling in love with Colonel Gray, and after the way her husband treated her, she must have needed something in the way of affection badly. It's no good a woman falling in love with a man unless he falls in love with her, said Mr. Manley, in the tone of a philosopher. Besides, women don't fall in love with men who are so feeble from illness as the colonel seems to be. How can there be an attraction? She might, of course, want to mother him very keenly. But that's quite a different thing. He paused, then added in a tone of some anxiety, I say, you're not trying to mix her up with a murder, if it was a murder. I'm not trying to mix anybody up in it, said Mr. Flexen slowly, but I don't mind telling you that it is growing quite a pretty problem, and to solve a problem you must have every factor in it. You see that the strong point about Lady Loudwater and Colonel Gray is, on your own showing, that they are uncommonly clever, and only stupid people commit murder, except, of course, once in a blue moon. But what about these gangs of criminals we sometimes read about, with extraordinarily clever men at the head of them? Don't they exist? said Mr. Manley, in a tone of surprise. They exist, but they don't commit murders, not in Europe at any rate, said Mr. Flexen. In the East and in the United States it's different, perhaps. 
Murder is always as much of a blunder as a crime. It makes people so keen after the criminal. No, no really intelligent criminal commits murder. Of course that's true, said Mr. Manley readily. He paused, then added in a thoughtful tone, I wonder whether the war has weakened our conception of the sanctity of human life. I shouldn't wonder, said Mr. Flexen, and their talk drifted into a discussion of generalities. He was glad that he was staying at the castle. His talk with Mr. Manley had been illuminating. Olivia dined in her sitting-room, and with a poor appetite. Away from Gray, she had fallen back into her anxiety and fearfulness. Wilkins was waiting on her, an insensible block of a fellow, but even he perceived that she was very little aware of what she was eating, and now and again paused, and in some worrying train of thought forgot that she was dining at all. After dinner, however, her mood changed. The fearfulness and anxiety at times vanished from her face, and a pleasant eager expectancy took their place. At a quarter to nine she took a dark wrap from her wardrobe, went quietly down the stairs, and slipped out of the side door, across the east lawn, and into the path through the shrubbery, unseen. Gray had suggested that he should come to the castle after dinner to spend the evening with her, but they had decided that it would be wiser to meet in the pavilion. There would be talk if he spent the evening with her so soon after her husband's death, with his body still unburied in the house. This was the only mention they made of him all the time they spent together. Besides, both of them found the pavilion in the wood a far more delightful meeting place than the castle. In the pavilion they felt that they were out of the world. Gray, too anxious and restless to await her at the pavilion, had come down the wood and into the end of the path through the shrubbery. It startled her to come upon him so suddenly. But when they came out of the shrubbery into the moonlit aisle of the wood, the fearfulness and anxiety and restlessness had vanished utterly from their faces. Both of them were smiling. They walked slowly, saying little, touching now and again, as they swayed in their walk along the turf. It seemed wiser not to light the candles in the pavilion. The moonlight, shining through the high windows, gave them light enough to see one another's eyes. It was all they needed. The time passed quickly in the ineffable confidences of lovers. They had a hundred things to tell one another, a hundred things to ask one another, in their effort to attain the oneness which is the aim of all true love. But in their joy in being together, in the joy of both of them, there was a feverishness, a sense that it was a menaced joy which must needs be brief. Again, they were striving to wring the most out of the hour which was so swiftly passing. At times the sense of danger which hung over them was so strong that they clung to one another, like frightened children in the dark. Though Mr. Flexen had at the time shown himself somewhat unbelieving in the matter of Mr. Manley's conclusions about the character and temperament of Gray and Olivia, the impression they had made on him grew stronger. He was too good a judge of men not to perceive that the budding dramatist had the intelligent imagination which makes for real shrewdness, and he was not disposed to underrate the value of the imagination in forming judgments of men and women. Probably Colonel Gray 
was a man of less intensity of emotion than Mr. Manley had declared, and Lady Loudwater less subtle and intelligent. But after making these reductions, he had here possible actors in a drama of passion, and though it was his experience that money, not passion, is the most frequent motive of murder, he must take the probability of Lord Loudwater's murder being a crime of passion into account, though, of course, the violent Hutchins threatened with ruin would undoubtedly benefit from a monetary point of view by the murder. At the same time, Hutchins had just had an interview, which had gone better probably than he had expected, with an uncommonly pretty girl. Mr. Carrington arrived soon after breakfast next morning, and Mr. Flexen at once discussed the matter of the inquest with him and the coroner. He found the lawyer chiefly eager to have as little scandal as possible, and the coroner took his cue from the lawyer. This suited Mr. Flexen admirably. He had no wish to show his hand so early. He foresaw that if the story of William Roper were told, the story of Lord Loudwater's quarrel with Colonel Grey at the cart and horses, there would be a painful scandal. The majority of the people of the neighborhood would at once believe and declare that Lady Loudwater or Colonel Grey or both had murdered Lord Loudwater. Such a scandal would in no way serve his purpose. It might rather hamper him. Pressure might be put on him, which might force him to take steps before the time was ripe for them. There was no difficulty in their having exactly the kind of inquest they wanted, for it was wholly in the hands of Mr. Flexen and the coroner. After careful discussion, they decided to limit it to Dr. Thornhill's evidence and that of the servants with regard to the dead nobleman's mood on the night of his death. Mr. Carrington urged strongly that full prominence should be given to the fact that the wound might have been self-inflicted, and the coroner promised that this should be done. When the coroner had left them, the lawyer said to Mr. Flexen, "'In a case of a man like the late Lord Loudwater, you can't be too careful, you know. Really, it would be better if the jury brought in a verdict of suicide. A suicide in a family is always better than a murder.' Hmm. You could hardly expect me to rest content with such a verdict, said Mr. Flexen. Not, I mean, on the evidence. Oh, no, I shouldn't, said Mr. Carrington. All I want to avoid is a lot of quite unnecessary painful scandal, which won't lead to anything of use to you about innocent people connected with my late client. You won't act without something pretty definite to go upon, while the scandal-mongers will talk on no grounds at all. Lord Loudwater was a queer customer, and goodness knows what will come to light for, of course. You'll investigate the affair thoroughly. The inquest, accordingly, was conducted on these lines. Only Dr. Thornhill, Wilkins, and Holloway were called as witnesses, and the coroner directed the jury to bring in a verdict to the effect that Lord Loudwater had died of a knife wound, and that there was no evidence to show whether it was self-inflicted or not. But in this he failed. The jury, muddle-headed, obstinate country folk, had made up their minds that Lord Loudwater was the kind of man to be murdered, and that, therefore, he had been murdered. They brought in the verdict that Lord Loudwater had been murdered by some person or persons unknown. Mr. Flexen, Mr. Carrington, and the coroner were annoyed. 
but they had too wide an experience of juries to be surprised. "'This will let loose a horde of reporters on us,' said Mr. Carrington very gloomily. "'It will,' said Mr. Flexen. "'The pet sleuths of the wire and the planet will leave London in about an hour.' "'Well, they'll have to be dealt with,' said Mr. Carrington. "'Oh, they're all right. I probably know them. I'll get them to work with me. They must be treated very nicely,' said Mr. Flexen cheerfully." "'They're always a confounded nuisance,' said Mr. Carrington, frowning. "'Not if they're kindly treated. Indeed, I shall very likely find them really useful,' said Mr. Flexen. "'But you might give the servants a hint to be careful of what they say. The hint will come best from you, and be much more effective than if it came from anyone else. You represent the family.' "'I'll see about it,' said Mr. Carrington. And he went to Olivia's boudoir to confer with her about the invitations to the funeral. Mr. Flexen was, indeed, little disturbed by the prospect of the coming of the newspaper men. A popular member of the chief literary and journalistic club in London, he would probably know them, or they would know of him, and he would find them ready enough to work with him. Besides, even if they discovered that the quarrel between Colonel Grey and Lord Loudwater had its origin in Lady Loudwater, in the present state of mind of the country, they would have to move very cautiously indeed in the case of a V.C. He did not indeed think it likely that they would discover the cause of the quarrel for some time. Possibly not before their papers had tired of the business and sent them on other errands. Mrs. Turnbull only knew of Lord Loudwater's threat to hound Colonel Grey out of the army. She did not know the reason of his fury and his threat. Elizabeth Twitcher would certainly hold her tongue about Lord Loudwater's subsequent quarrel with Lady Loudwater and his accusations and threats. Mrs. Carruthers was even more unlikely to tell of it. It was unlikely that William Roper would come within the ken of the newspaper men. No one could tell them that he was the great repository of facts in the case and Mr. Flexen believed that he had given him good cause to keep his mouth shut till he called on him to open it. Taking one thing with another, he thought it more likely that the newspaper men would not hinder him in his purpose of dealing with the affair in his own way. On the other hand, they might very well be used to help him discover the unknown woman who had had the furious quarrel with Lord Loudwater at about eleven o'clock. Indeed, he regarded the information about that quarrel as a sop to be thrown to them. She afforded just the element of melodrama in the case, which would be most grateful to their different newspapers, and provide them with plenty of the kind of headlines which best sold them. It was certain that James Hutchins would also occupy their attention. The fact that he had been discharged with contumely and threats that he had departed uttering violent threats against a dead man, and that he had returned to visit Elizabeth Twitcher late that night, were doubtless being discussed by the whole neighborhood. However, only himself and William Roper knew, at present, that James Hutchins had come and gone by the library window, had actually passed twice within a few feet of his sleeping or dead master. That fact also Mr. Flexen proposed to keep to himself till he saw reason to divulge it. His next business must be to question Hutchins. 
it was quite likely that there lay the solution of the mystery. End of chapter 9 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas